there's an interesting connection between my hometown and the corrugated industry. I'm from Sandusky, Ohio. At one time was the headquarters of the Heindemdahl Paper Company, which was like the Smurfit Stone of its day. They had 26 plants from New Jersey to Kansas City. A fairly large integrated company. They had a couple of paper mills. And they were eventually bought by West Vaco, but corrugated industry money actually built a lot of the educational infrastructure in my hometown. The library sure. has a wing. The Froman Library. Sidney Froman was the president of the company. There's the Froman Planetarium on the high school. The company donated their office building to the school board. The corrugated box industry influenced my life even before I knew what it was. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. Gene, did you know AICC's got a second podcast? I did not know that. AICC started weekly updates. If you want to get the most recent news in AICC, please download, subscribe to AICC Update. And now a word from our sponsors. Oxbox are the ones to call if you're looking for heavy-duty or jumbo box manufacturing. Now you can get the same Oxbox strength with weatherproof durability. Their new Echo Board boxes are incredibly strong and yet earth-friendly. You got to watch the case study video to see what these boxes can endure. Check it out at www.oxbox.com. Strength you can depend on. We are really excited to have the opportunity to sit down with Steve Young, AICC ambassador at large. I think from my perspective, Gene, and just getting into the industry maybe 15 years ago now, and when I see AICC logo, when I come to these events, there's not another person I can think of that personifies the organization more than Steve. And so you truly are the face of the organization. I was thinking this yesterday on the golf course. You're like the Hamilton musical in the room when it happened. Now, not necessarily involved in 1974. You've had a storied career, but I look at how far the associations come under your leadership, where it continues to go now under Mike's, which that was your plan to create a successful transition. So it's exciting to have you share with us your significant accomplishments over your career. Yeah. So let's dive right in. What are you up to these days? Thanks for the invitation. I want to pick up on something you just said. It really has been a labor of love. I told this to somebody last night at the bar. Mike and I know a lot of other association executives in these manufacturing circles, right? And I don't think I've ever met any colleagues in those kinds of organizations that have the connections to their industry like he and I have, or that I've had the privilege to have over the years. And it's something about this industry, and it's more like a family, really. And that's, and I've been the beneficiary of all that generosity and really love over the years. Why is that? Is that something you created when you took over, or is that, has it always been like that? I don't think it's anything I have done, but I think it's something that the creation of the association fostered, really. So I think independence coming together for feeling this shared need and a shared purpose started to foster good relationships. And I think that's continued to build over the years. There's obviously some of the historical photos you have. There's something on the web that you can see. Just that first meeting, I think, was in Chicago where they got together to 
formed. Is that correct? That's correct. The first organizational meeting was Chicago, but the first national meeting was St. Louis. What year? November 1974. And you were a part of that? No, I didn't start until 1983. So let's jump into that a little bit. After after a successful career as a mud hen, is that what University of Toledo? Toledo. Uh Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, where where were you born and raised? Sandusky, Ohio. Okay. There's an interesting connection between my hometown and the corrugated industry. I don't know if you know this, but I was up in Canada at their president's lunch, and they asked me to say a few words, and I told them, I said, look, I'm from Sandusky, Ohio. At one time, was the headquarters of the Heindendout Paper Company, which was like the Smurfit stone of its day. They had 26 plants from New Jersey to Kansas City, a fairly large integrated company. They had a couple paper mills, and they were eventually bought by West Vaco, but corrugated industry money actually built a lot of the educational infrastructure in my hometown. The library sure. has a wing, the Froman Library. Sidney Froman was the president of the company. There's the Froman Planetarium on the high school. The company donated their office building to the school board. The corrugated box industry influenced my life even before I knew what it was. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Trace a family tree to that company and where they wound, did they sell? They opened a plant in Toronto and I think it was on I don't know, Downview Avenue or someplace. And eventually, Domtar acquired them, Domtar Packaging. Their division acquired the Heinedout plants. So it's interesting, you, you, I meet guys in Toronto over the years in the AICC Canada, and they say, oh, I had my, my, my start at H&D, Heinedout. So it has a great legacy. You grew up in Sandusky, and you got into politics. What was your path early on? I was an international relations major at the University of Toledo, which, and I wanted to be a, I wanted to go into international business, be a diplomat or something like that. And uh, so I remember once I, I had a, an interview with Georgetown University. I was going to go to their School of Foreign Service, so I wanted to. And I had an interview with the dean who looked down his nose at me and looked at my pedigree from the University of Toledo. And he said, I don't think you'd be successful here. And that was the end of the interview. (laughs) So that that was a blessing, really, because so what I did was after I got out of school, I went to D.C. on an internship. I had an internship with my congressman. And that lasted about six months. The congressman retired, and then I got a job with the House Republican Conference. And what I was doing there was I was writing floor speeches for, for Republican members of Congress, right? So that when any item, any legislative item of any topic came up, they would have something to pull out of their briefcase that we had written and sound intelligent about it, giving a floor speech. So that was our job. So we had to write these things every week and deliver them to the offices. Did you, were you fascinated by that experience, being there, being in D.C., or was it just really kind of something you needed to take your first step and... I was shocked that I was there to begin with, a hayseed from Ohio showing up on Capitol Hill. I was funny, I was, used to take the bus to work, and I remember I was remember getting on the bus once, and a bunch of these interns, right, my fellow interns are getting on the bus, and one of them said something like, oh yeah, we wrote the uh, amendment to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty today. <laughs> and I thought to myself, geez, all I did was I got the congressman a chicken salad sandwich. <laughs> What, were the, what was your end goal at that time when you were an intern? What were you still looking to go into international well, relations? Yeah. or what were you? Yeah, because I deferred my admission. I actually was admitted to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which is NDC. But at that time, the tuition was $3,500 a year. And for me, it might as well have been $3,500,000. So I deferred my admission for a year, and I said, okay, I'll work, get some work experience. The work experience 
I started to enjoy what I was doing, so I never went to graduate school. And it's interesting, though, because my aspirations of being in international business have played out over the years in this industry, because it's a global industry. Sure. Paper industry, packaging. So I've been blessed to see mo most of the world, or certainly a lot of it. When you say you wanted to be a diplomat. That's what you've That's essentially what you done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I'd love to know if you remember how much was a year at University of Toledo. In Toledo, it probably was all in about a thousand. Yeah. Wow. You know, That's crazy. Three times. Three hundred dollars a quarter. Yeah. Now I think it would cost you sixty-five to seventy grand to go to Johns Hopkins. So what happens? You're writing these speeches on these topics, and you take another pivot, which I think gets you into the association world. That. You've never seemed to be able to wrangle out, but... Let me pick up, Gina, what you were saying, that how I got into the association world. So while I was writing these issue briefs, they assigned me tax issues and small business issues. So I was writing for the Small Business Committee. And in doing that, I got in touch with the uh, National Small Business Association and got to know the people down there because they fed me information. And I got offered a job there. As a lobbyist, I'm 25 years old, I'm going to be a lobbyist. Actually registered with the clerk of the house and all that. I did that for a couple of years. And in doing that, we started this group called the Small Business Legislative Council, which was a group of associations whose members were primarily small businesses. One of those was Manufacturers Agents National Association in California. And the president of that uh, association was in Washington and he, he started talking, and he was a great guy, knew him very well. And he offered me a job. So I'm 25 years old, or 20, however old, and I'm thinking, California. Sure, why okay. not? Yeah. <laughs> so off I went, and I was out there for four years. Sort of interesting at 25 years old, you're a lobbyist, small business, you're in these areas, you're playing in this field at a very young age by virtue of proximity, right? You're there and people are starting to see your skills and talents and, right. and asking you to do and more exciting things. When you start this small business legislative council, how many people are in there? Who's the, is somebody spearheading as these topics come up, as priorities come up? Yeah, my, my boss at the time, John Lewis, was the, he was the founder of it really. And I think at one time I lost, it was about 100 associations. It's impressive. Yeah. And we're still members, AICC. Mike's on their board now. And, I, and that's another little bit of irony. I, fi I find it it's interesting that I used to work for them, and now Mike's on their board. <laughs> How it comes full circle. Yes, full circle. yes yeah. exactly. So you go to California, yeah. a hayseed. Now you're out there. Fascinating? Yeah. I, when I moved to California, I learned that not everybody reads the newspaper every day like <laughs> they do in Washington. So you can't strike up a conversation about the fiscal year budget just with anybody on the street. <laughs> so what I, and that's what I liked about living in California because it was such a relief from the, the manufactured environment, political environment in Washington. And I got to know a lot of really great people out there and some still lifelong friends. So, what a dichotomy like yeah. that description. Yeah, I mean, everybody trying to beach. race to get ahead. I went, literally went to the beach. I was living two blocks off the sand in Newport Beach. It was a group house, three other guys. Time of your life. Yeah, and uh, working in Irvine, so it was, uh, it, was a, it was just a great time. During that time, you're probably late 20s, mid to late 20s. Mm -hmm. What right. types of things were you picking up during that time? 
I was learning a lot about sales, business and sales, because the, what I was doing was the group I was working for, Manufacturers Agents National Association, represented independent rep companies. They, those were our members. Had you decided at this point that being a in part of an association, being in that world, is what you wanted to do as a career? Yeah, path, and that's what actually took me back to D.C. Because yeah. being in Southern California, there are not a lot of national associations headquartered there. And I knew that if I wanted to be back, as this was going to be my career, I needed to move back to the East Coast. Plus, I was always an East Coast or an Eastern time zone guy anyway. When I was living in California, I just couldn't stand being three hours behind everybody. So I knew I wanted to get back. And I did in 1983. And I went back to my friends at the Small Business Legislative Council, my old boss, and had lunch with him on one of my, I think it was one of my legislative trips actually for MANA. And I said, okay, I want to come back to the, to the East Coast. And he said, you know what? There's a guy over in Alexandria. His name's Dick Troll. And he's looking for somebody. And I said, what's the association? He fiddled around and says, and says, Association of Independent Corrugated, he fumbled over the word, Corrugated <laughs> Converters. And I thought, what the heck is that? <laughs> So not like you can Google it either. It would have to be a world book encyclopedia <laughs> at that point. No. So I said, okay. So I called a guy and I went over, I went over for my interview and it's a small office on North Washington street in Alexandria. And I walk in and it's a kind of a fairly large room and Margaret Singleton, who was Dick's longtime administrative assistant, she was sitting there and she greeted me. And, and here I'm, and it's like May 20th, and it's 90 degrees outside, and I show up in a three-piece wool suit. <laughs> and, uh, and there's Dick Troll with a vacuum cleaner in shorts and penny loafers, no socks, and a golf shirt, vacuuming the floor in front of the, uh, the dot matrix printer <laughs> or something. Because he'd spilled some, I don't know, toner or something. <laughs> and, so the vacuum cleaner's roaring, roaring vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Margaret's there shaking her head, smiling. You're and, wondering what the heck is, what guy, is this? <laughs> some guy dressed like the janitor <laughs> because it's the early 80s and yeah. you're wearing a suit to work every day. You go to the, you walk into Alexandria, you walk into that office for your interview. What was AICC at that time? I think AICC at that time, would have been nine years old, was, I guess you can just say finding its roots. They're trying to gain traction. And that's, I think, where Dick Troll came in. Dick Troll's talents, he had spent many years with Horner Waldorf in sales. He then went to work for Wallace Container, a founding member of AICC. He served as president of the association in 75, 76, or 76, 77. Back then, we called the elected leaders of AICC president, and now we call them chairman. And he went to work for Arvco Container for a brief period as their director of marketing when George Arbenigan himself was the president of AICC. And so at that time, that's when George Arbenigan said to Dick, we need you to run this association because at that point they had a management company doing it or it was a lot of volunteers doing the work. So Dick came to the association in 1980 and he... He had a lot of what I call trollisms, right? <laughs> Just these expressions that all stick in my head. He said, you cannot run a trade association on fear. And in those early days, that was still the motivator, right? 
the whole paper crisis in 1974, the impetus to, to form the association. And a lot of that militance was still very much alive in the association. I'd say, well, what else can we do? And Dick loved young people. He loved being around students, and he was a natural trainer. And that's when he developed in 1980, 1981, the applied sales technique program or something like that. Anyway, he took a Xerox sales training program, and every place it said Xerox or copy machine, he just put in corrugated boxes. <laughs> and uh, that became our industry sales program because he would say the great, he would always decry the, what he would call the lack of professionalism among corrugated industry salespeople at that time. And he felt that's where AICC could play a role. So he was the vision that started us along the path of education and training. Wow. That is now very yeah. much centerpiece of centerpiece. what your program Correct. is. So when you, so this guy's vacuuming by the printer and he finally realizes you're there and he turns the thing off and there you are in this full suit. Tell us what you remember about sitting down and having that interview and how it transpired, what you thought of Dick and how things progress to where you get a job offer. We, we started out with small talk and he said, so have you ever seen a corrugator? I said, no, because I hadn't. And he said, it's about the length of a football field. And he's holding his arms out like this. And he's trying to explain to me how this thing works. No diagrams or anything with his hands. And he's going waving like this and up and down. And he's talking about the bridge section. And then it comes out and it goes together like that. <laughs> and I'm watching and nodding my head and trying to follow along. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. And, and then he said, well, when can you start? It's <laughs> outstanding. It was a tough interview. <laughs> did you, in all seriousness, we joked about Google a minute ago, and did you have any idea what AICC was about? Did you have any idea what Corrugated was well, all about? Well, I did, what, I did what, realize, <laughs> yes, I did realize that after I thinking about Corrugated, I did put two and two together. It's about Corrugated boxes, cardboard boxes, I call them. And i got to be very honest. When I walked into that door on July 6th, 1983, for my first day, I thought to myself, this will last three months. Because mm. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't going to work for cardboard boxes. I didn't think that was going to be very exciting. I didn't think it had a future. I thought it was boring. Their office was in Alexandria. I really wanted to be down on K Street, where all the action was, in downtown DC. And it just shows how wrong you can be sometimes. What were you brought in to do? Stuff envelopes. Really, because we sent out mailings then, right, for conventions. That's how many employees did the ICC have? I was the third. I was the third one. It was not an auspicious beginning because two days after, I started on a Wednesday and a Friday evening, I, I was out, I was cycling in downtown D.C. up to friends on Capitol Hill and I had a horrific bicycle accident in the street and shattered my left arm. So I had to call them on Monday morning and said, I'm sorry, I'm in the hospital. <laughs> so how many members, 83, Dick's kind of run this like a one-man band, really, and the founding members, like you said, would, he is one, so he's got a vision. George right. Arvanigian, not a small personality, I think he's got a vision. Joe R. Palmieri, Bill Akers, some pretty impressive people have created this, and I'm sure I'm mm -hmm. forgetting several names. Have they turn this over to Dick, and or is there a lot of interaction and really a lot of hands-on? These are entrepreneurs who 
of everyone that I know still were comfortable making daily decisions. They were heavily involved in their business. I have to think they are in the association as well. No. This is what Dick's strength was yeah. at the time, because he was in the industry, he knew the industry, he knew what it needed, and he himself was a larger-than-life figure. He, he, when Dick walked into the room, you knew it. You asked how many members. I think, I think the second year I was there, Jack Rollman was president of the association, another larger-than-life figure in our industry. And I think at that time, we crossed the 500-member mark. So let's, maybe we need to go back to, I know you weren't working there, but for a lot of our listeners, especially in the Czech Republic, we probably <laughs> want to visit the paper crisis and what's transpiring that, that brings these folks together and, and the level of concern and frustration they were experiencing. We talked about the founding of the association. I would be doing a great disservice to our good members in Michigan if I didn't say that the first organizers of this independent movement were, was the Michigan Sheet Plant Association or something like that. And Jim Cowell at Great Northern Packaging in Grand Rapids, George Arvin Egan, and Duke Gregory at Advanced Packaging. And they, they started this little association because we didn't have sheet feeders back then. And all sheet plants got their sheets from integrated companies, corrugators. And then during this paper crisis in 74, what was happening was it wasn't so much that roll stock was in a in tight supply, is it just that the integrators were telling their sheet plant customers on a Friday afternoon, we can't ship you any more sheets on Monday. Yeah. So it was the sheet plant group that was the more of a catalyst to bring the larger group together in Chicago for that organizational meeting and then eventually St. Louis for the big one. And at this time, I, I know... That 500 member is a big number in nine years, but the market is completely different at this point of time. There's a significantly larger number of integrated companies mm -hmm. and a massive number of independent companies across the country. Is that correct? Correct. Do you have any recollection of kind of the numbers at the time? We always use the number 1,500. Rooftops, box plants. I think it was U.S., not necessarily North America, but U.S., Okay. Rooftops, which is now down below 1,000. So you can see how the industry has shrunk. Excuse me. The industry is not shrunk in terms of production. Consolidated. Consolidated. Yeah. yeah. Get back to your first days on the job. You said you thought you were going to last three months. <laughs> what changed in that first three months for you to get to the fourth month and fifth month and so on? Well, Dick decided that I would go with my arm and cast <laughs> to the summer board meeting. We used to have summer board meetings then, which was held in Toronto at the Four Seasons Hotel in Yorkville. Nice place. Yeah, you're, you were sold. to say I'm no sold. to a Four Seasons <laughs> You had me at Four Seasons. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but no, but I have a story about that because I remember Jack Grohlman introducing me at the, and they gave me a seat at the table. Dick said, I want you to sit here at the table. And uh, Jack Rollman stood up and said, members of the board, he introduced me. And everybody applauded. And then I left the room to do whatever I had to do. But, and then that evening at dinner, I was sitting arm in cast next to uh, George and Josie Arvanigan. And my hand had started to swell because of the cast. And Josie Arvanigan looked at me and she said, 
you need to go upstairs right now and put your arm up and get that swelling down. And I, I thought how that was, I just felt, I felt the affection of the members at that point. And I think that's really what started my, the, the turn, turn my opinion. Sounds about right. Just yeah. you alluded to it at the beginning of the discussion, just the affection and the membership and, and how it, yeah, it these guys took me so under their is, wing. Yeah, Those founders is, took me under their wing, and uh, yeah, that's what did it. I started to meet all these great guys, and uh, and they, and and I I spent a week in Hardy Sanders' plant in 1984. That was past the three month mark by a year, but again, I spent went from department to my department every day to help learn was business. That, did Dick drive that? Did Hardy drive that? I said I needed to do it. Can I do it? And I went. And the other thing I wanted to do was see a paper mill. And that's when, I don't know, later in 1983 or some, something like that's when I met Ralph Young because he was at that time working for Great Southern. And they were having one of their customer events, right? And uh, blew me down and I went to see uh, the Great Southern Mill in Dothan, Alabama. Just have such a different approach. And I, I don't even meet you until 2003, but you are, you're all in. You're still under 30 at this point. I'm going to say I'm going to go spend a week in a box plant because I really need to understand this. Business. What was your mindset at the time? Where did you want your career to go? You've been there a year. Were you all in on corrugated in the ICC at that point, or were you just trying to get as much experience as possible? I think at that point I was sending resumes out that first year probably to to other organizations. But I really I think some people get into the industry by by accident, some by family some by design, but I think I've always considered I'm in this industry by the grace of God. And and because all, because all those resumes I sent out were just rejected. Yes. <laughs> Plus that strenuous interview with Dick, you, you were sold. Glad you got through that. <laughs> Glad you got through that. I don't know how you managed <laughs> with all like three questions. When can you start being, being probably the third question? <laughs> I have to assume as you get involved and things start rolling and you're learning about the industry, and again, 1,500 rooftops, there's a tremendous opportunity. But there's probably a life cycle, and I don't know if you can pinpoint it exactly, just in the these transitions of the industry, did you start to see things early on in that first five or six years where there were pivots beginning? And how long was Dick involved? And when did you start to seriously come under consideration for, for the president's role at the association? I think the 80s was a great time of transition for the industry, right? Think about sheet feeders. Corrugated supplies was long established. Ohio packaging, I think they were pretty much to the Jolly family and Van Horns, right? So they were sheet feeders back in the 70s, maybe? But Hans Koch, in Toronto started 10 core. This idea of the shared sheet feeder, that started in 1983. And now think about today, the sheet feeder side of the business and how that grew. And Van Horns ex expanded as well into the Secor, Schwarz. So that was an interesting trend to watch, that growth in the 80s. The whole concept of pre-printed liner board started in the 80s. The whole move toward graphics started in the 80s. I remember in 1985 in Colorado Springs, we had a speaker by the name of Glenn Buckner. I don't know if you guys remember that name, but he was 
I guess he was he made his career in the printing plate business, but he became a consultant to a lot of members. And he started out by saying, "All right, all you people in the room who think do not drop and this end up is graphics, please leave." <laughs> it was fun to watch member companies become prominent in the graphics field. Shippenhouse, I think of Shippenhouse. I think of Pioneer in Wisconsin in the preprint. Pride Container, uh, out on the West Coast, you had Scope. Ward introduces its Verographics machines in the 80s. So you see all this independence growing, and that also added to my interest, because I can sit and watch how machines were in turn all day, because it's fascinating to me. We're seeing this like explosion in the mid to late 80s in the corrugated industry. The independents you're saying are blowing up. How does that impact the ICC? How does that impact your role within AICC? So, are you guys growing as an organization? Yes, we are, and we're trying to. We're meeting the need of the growth in many ways. And I go back to the training. The second, the second training course that we produced was called Corman, C-O-R-M-A-N, and it was designed for corrugated supervisors. And then, and again, going back to Dick, he used to say this to sales managers too. He would say. If you have a great salesman and you make him a sales manager, what you usually do is you lose a good salesman and you get a lousy sales manager. And he used to say the same about supervisors and machine operators. You make them, if you make them supervisors, they don't necessarily have the innate skills to be a supervisor. So this is what this program was designed to do. And supervisory skills, coaching, and it was, it was a binder with six cassette tapes and so you'd have to listen to the tapes and then you do the exercise in the book. All, all analog back then. But you get 10 supervisors together in a Holiday Inn conference room in O'Hare Airport and two-day two day program and that was it. That was part of my job. I had to sell this, right? So I would go out to members and advertise and help promote these things. No regional directors, no formal structure to the association. It's really still just couple of annual meetings, right? A, a spring meeting. It, no, there was things. structure to the okay. association. And who uh, was driving, who was the brains behind that? Is that you and Dick sitting in a conference room? And, and No, I would have to go back, Gene, and say it was Paul Vishney. He was our first general counsel. So he was the guiding force, our legal force, and he has filled that role for 40 years. <laughs> who drove the, what I would call the intelligent organization of this association. They weren't called regional directors then, they were called regional vice presidents, so we've demoted them <laughs> in the years since. So Paul, Paul wrote the bylaws and he set out the structure. And one of the things that I think has served us very well is the very strong, and you know you'll agree with this as a past, past chairman, the very strong backbench that we build within the board. Same way, through, same way on the supplier side. And that step-by-step -step ascendancy to the chairmanship really does, it, there's continuity, there's, a, there's integrity of purpose and thought and direction, I think, in the board and, and where they want the association to go. And so that's another block in the foundations of AICC. What I find fascinating is you had described in 74, in the, it, we'll call it really a sheet crisis, but born from necessity now, you, you said by the early 80s, you had several sheet feeders. You had Hans Koch, you had Van Horn, you had Jolly. 
that to me is just, that's what's so amazing about that entrepreneurial spirit is, hey, this is a pain point. We can figure that out. We can do it. And it continues to evolve. Then it moves into the reflexographic printing. Then it moves into preprint and it labels. And it's just absolutely fascinating. Kind of this big, lunky business from, as it appears from the outside, is still so incredibly nimble. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You've witnessed that all unfold. Correct. At what point now are we in your career and when did things start to transition from Dick? The resume stopped going out. So Steve, yeah, Steve started enjoying his time. <laughs> yep. Stop writing. I, I didn't update a resume for 28 years. I think anybody who knew Dick knew that he, he was, he lived a hard life. He played hard and worked hard. And in 1988, he had a small stroke. And this was just before the winter board meeting. So I had to go to the board meeting. And it was at the Rancho Las Palmas Resort in Palm Springs. I think Bob Thacker, Thacker Container, was the president then of the association. And so I had to essentially go out and run the board meeting, which in and of itself was not a big deal to do. But I think that's when, that's probably when I felt myself that I would want this role. And because uh, the board knew who I was, obviously, but that's, I think that was probably a turning point in my own thinking. And yeah, I think there, there really is a future here. How different was from a high level, the 1988 winter board meeting from the winter board meetings today? I joke sometimes, especially as it concerns our paper board and sheet supply committee, that the agenda stays the same. I just changed the date and <laughs> the time. So to answer your question, <laughs> it seems the same topics come up over and over. I think today, though, going back to 1988 versus now, I think we were operating on so much more of a, we use metrics more, what we call the destination model that was adopted years ago. Our focus and the meetings are much more strategic. And the board used to count paper clips in the office, that kind of stuff. Yes. I got on the board in 2005, maybe 2004. I attended a, a winter board meeting, Cindy Baker. We were doing a lot of strategic planning. I was, I might have been on the board before that, but I look at this balance that you've always had, and, and I'm, I'm, stating all this because I'm interested in addressing it from your stylistic perspective and what you brought to this chaos. And I say that because you, a lot of strong personalities in the room, they're running their own businesses, the association, they're volunteering their time to come to these meetings. And we are sitting in these post-fall national meetings doing a deep dive of the forensics of what did we like, what didn't we like, what feedback did we get, and we're dusting it up. We're talking about we're not marketing the next meeting enough, and we seem to be running by the seat of our pants. And you have to distill all this coming out of these meetings where I've sat in several, where it almost became this, Steve, you have to do this, and you people should be doing this. And how did you balance all that with You've always had this approach of, we're here to serve the association, but you still have to run a business. You have employees that work for that association. How did you manage this 
I look at 05, 06, 07, 08, there was a lot going on. How do you bring your style and influence on that to, to successfully manage that chaos? I think if anybody who works, I first of all think I'm in the corrugated industry. Like this is my, my, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm in the packaging business. Secondarily, I'm in the association management business, right? So that's my second part of my career. So anybody in that side of the business knows that just from board dynamics, and it is a science, right? You're going to have people who want their time in the sun and they say things. And you have to take that in and just filter it out. Okay, he had a valid point. How can we do it better? There's always room for improvement, right? You look for that in your own business every day. I never take it as a criticism or think it not personally because it's the members association. Where did that attitude come from and that perspective? Is that something that over time you've developed or was there somebody, did you learn that from Dick? Is there somebody that you really crafted your leadership style from? Yes. Dick certainly taught me that. Although Dick, to be honest, because he was from the industry, he felt like it was his baby. Mm. And he had the personality where if somebody told him something, he would tell him to take a long walk off short pier. And I've seen I saw that many times. But I think what I've seen, I go back to the fact that Mike and I are part of these other roundtables of other association executives, and I've seen others in our positions, you know, crash and burn because they don't have the proper, what I consider, the right approach to run the organizations. And again, it's the members, it's the members association, it's not the staffs. They guide what we do. We're responsible to them. They guide what we do. You can go online and find your Hall of Fame induction video to AICC. And one of the things that a lot of people stated during that video was that you brought a level of professionalism to the organization that maybe wasn't there before. And I think you just touched on a lot of that stuff, data and analytics and numbers. And when you look back upon the last 20, 30 years, would you agree with that? Is that something you set out to do? I would agree with that, but I would I'd venture to say that I think our members in their own companies using data, analytics, metrics, meant that we had to also start adopting those because that's how we're going to measure our success as well. We're running a business just like our members are running businesses. It's got to make money. So that's what I've enjoyed over these years is that's what I've been able to learn because I was not a business major, but I've learned a lot about business. Let's go back to 88. You do that winter board meeting. Dick's not there. You had noted that as beginning of a transition. What takes place? You obviously got good feedback from the members of the association from that winter meeting. Yeah, but even so, I think really the transition that had to take place was the discussion between me and Dick Okay. after that. No. I think Dick had to come to the realization and he, and he had to give me more responsibility. He had to think about his future. And let's not forget, at that time... Back in 1985, AICC started the International Corrugated Packaging Foundation. And Dick was serving two roles because we didn't have a full-time president of that group yet. We were still running it, even though, and FBA, I think, had come in in the early 90s. Dick was doing that as well. So I think Dick then began to think of himself as, okay, he could transition out of AICC, I could step in, and he could go full-time to his ICP up. And that's what happened. Did you bring that up to him when you got back, or did he bring that up to you? How did that conversation I brought it up, and then we talked, and... How did he take it? Like, oh, no, he took it well. 
Yeah, he and I had a great working relationship. He's like a second father to me That's in many ways. That's and great. We had a, and we fought like that too sometimes. But, but we had a great working relationship. I loved him and, and his family. When did you step in officially as president? I, I think it was like 93, 92 or 93. So a bit of a long tail to that yeah. transition plan. Yeah, it was. But it was 92, 93. And so this is where my going out to lunch starts. Yeah. Okay. So it's like 1994. So I, so the transition's taking place, right? I'm the executive vice president, executive director, whatever my title was. And we were still using this old DOS-based database called Nutshell. And we, I wanted to get us into the, the 90s. So I wanted to change the database, and this became a point of great contention. You know, I think it... And here we go again, this parallel between the association and the members. How many member companies do I hear about transitions to second generations going awry when dad doesn't want, the son wants to move the bookcase and dad says, yeah. no, you're not going to move the bookcase, right? That's kind of what was happening in the ICC's office. I wanted to move things around and Dick was having none of it. And uh, so then I, that's when in 1994, I had this opportunity to go work for an association management company. And I left, I left the association, and I went down to this firm in downtown D.C., and I was managing three different associations. These are smaller associations that don't have, they're not large enough to have their own staff, so they hire us to manage them. Their conferences, their whatever, legislative, whatever they're doing. And I was doing three different associations. One of them was the healthcare industry. The other one was like the group that represented Blockbuster and... Hollywood video, the video retail people, <laughs> they don't exist anymore. Yes. <laughs> and then there was this council on packaging in the environment. So I had a packaging related organization as well. So I was doing that and I, it was going pretty well. They were happy with what I was doing. And, but then I get a call. I get a call from Jim Hagland in the spring of 90. I think it was. Yeah, spring of 95. Jim Hagen. He's president that year. And uh, he said, we'd really like to talk to you about coming back. Dick and I would keep in touch. And the gentleman they hired as my successor apparently just wasn't working out. There was a fiber box association meeting in Newport Beach. I flew out to California, actually. My new association, we had a meeting out there. So it just happened to coincide. So I had dinner with Bill Flynn and Jim Hagelin, and I agreed to come back. Then. And that was in summer of 95. So I was out for 10 months. Let's unpack a lot of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, you glossed right over the... <laughs> so you alluded to this bookshelf and the nutshell. So get us in the room where you and Dick are sitting down. You're like, this is it. I've had enough. What was... We don't know how... You now, we've had a couple... We had a couple of blow-ups in the kitchen where I, he stormed in, and I followed him in, and I remember telling him to get a like once. <laughs> do something else other than be in this office because that's really what he did. This is a succession mm -hmm. and these are not easy. Right. Here this guy spent his career in the industry and he's started this thing from its inception and now he's passing it off to someone he loves, trusts, respects and hired for the job but has to let go. And he didn't want to let go. Yeah. Yeah. And so one day I went in and I said, look, I have this opportunity and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. What was his reaction? I, he was surprised, and I think he tried to put a best face on it. He 
thought, this is good, congratulations, and all that. But I know in retrospect, he was probably really disappointed and maybe a little bit hurt because he and I had worked together for, at that point, 11 years. And What was going through your mind? Was it, I'm going to show him, or was it, I just, time to move on? To be honest, one of the, one of the attractions of working for this association management company was the possibility of becoming a partner, getting a piece of the action. So I was being influenced by the success I saw in our industry yep. to try and maybe get a little ownership sure. in something. And, and so that, that was a motivator for me. You're at dinner with Bill and Jim, and again, let's unpack. They're talking to you about coming back. Dick's still there. So how does that unfold? Well, and that, so <laughs> that reminds me, because I didn't tell Dick that I was going to go out there and meet with Bill and Jim. Sure. I because I was out there on my other business. It just so happened that FBA was meeting at that time and I was going to meet with them. And Dick blew up. He really had a fit and found out that I'd done that. And he, upset with you or upset with? Everybody. Yeah. Everybody. All players. Yeah. He was not happy at all. He felt he'd been betrayed. And in retrospect, I should have let him know I was going to do that. I should have been up front and done that with a little bit more integrity. But nonetheless, he was happy that I was coming back. And now it's 95? 1995, yep. And is it more of a formal transition now? Is Dick now full-time ICPF? So part of you coming back is, I'll come back in, in this role. Yeah, I came back that. in this role. He's in ICPF and was very smooth. Yeah. Now, you, how big is the staff when you come back? How many of those folks did you have a part in hiring? Are you starting to map out from an association perspective and you managing and running that, how you're going to strategically move the team? It was a challenge coming back on the staffing side because my predecessor, my short-lived predecessor, had made a couple of hires that didn't last. Mm. And then subsequent to that, I hired some folks. There was a lot more... I would say turnover in the staff in those in that 95 to 2000 period. Now I'm very happy to say the the longevity on our staff is incredible. So I think that's been a very key part of our strength in the last 20 years is the continuity and the dedication of the staff. You come back in mid to late 90s, things are doing well. 9/11 happens. Explain some of the ups and downs the associations had over the last 20 years. No, I, I want to talk about 9-11 because it shattered everybody. And I made a decision that we were not going to be cowed by that. We had a national convention scheduled in Vancouver 30 days to the day that that happened. And the whole world was shutting down. It was like a pre-COVID shutdown. Nobody was traveling. Members were calling, and I remember talking to Roy Allen, Buckeye Corrugated. He was president then, and my board won't let me travel. He had a ESOP board. But we, we, we made a decision, the executive committee, and we made a decision that we were not going to cancel our meeting, our convention, even though we had very legitimate force majeure clauses in our contracts. We could have done it without penalty. But no, we felt the industry had to get together. And uh, we did. We had a Small, earth, 525 people. Somewhat subdued. Somewhat I was there. subdued. We flew into Seattle and rented a car and drove over the border to attend. And I remember 
showing up to that cocktail hour, and it was the smallest group I had seen. But it was a great it was a great meeting. Small group, but good group. Yeah, very much so. Small group, a good group. And I remember one thing I started doing was having our national anthems played of the two founding member companies. That, and I remember we we didn't just play the anthems in Vancouver. You know, we had opera style vocalists come in and lead us all in singing our anthems. That was very poignant after 9-11. And, and let's fast forward to COVID. One thing I told the board in Amelia Island in 2021, a year after everything had been shut down, how proud I was that AICC was the first association in our industry to start meeting in person again. And that took some decision making. Sure. And it took people to be brave enough and say, We've got to meet in person. We can't continue this fear. Explain that strength and leadership that you showed around 9-11. And all the strong leaders you've been around your whole entire career. Talk a little bit about your decision at that time to go on with that meeting. What it meant to you. Why did you feel the need? Again, I go back to what's the strength of our industry? The strength of our members every day in their, with their customer relationships. It's relationships. Right. I felt in order to heal after something like 9-11, for people to begin to heal, they have to be together. We have to go back to some kind of a normalcy. And, uh, and it, it, you guys know me, I'm a man of faith, and I'm a man of faith, not fear. So I think that also played a big role back then, that we needed to get together and carry on with our business. Because business had to be carried on. And it was impactful in a positive way. I was at both of those meetings and it felt great to be back in person. Obviously, I think in terms of people in your professional, personal life that have influenced your style, obviously Dick Troll, we've talked about him quite a bit. Who else do you attribute to really helping form you as a leader and form you as who you are today? This is um, dangerous territory because <laughs> I know I'll miss someone. I'll know I'll miss someone who's been very important. If you want to go back to the start of the guys I knew well, like Hardy Sanders, Bill Akers, especially Hardy was, Hardy did not suffer fools gladly. And so I was a little bit intimidated by him and in a good way. I wanted to do a good job. And I'll never forget, we had, a, we had some kind of an event, and I was doing most of the running of it. And he wrote me a letter and said, I did a good job. And the next meeting, he'd buy me a sodi pop. <laughs> Jack Rollman, I mentioned him earlier. Fast forward to Rich Eastwood in Canada. Jim Hagland, of course. Jim Hagland's like a brother to me, like my older brother. Much, much older brother? Much, much older. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. I've had the pleasure of traveling much of the world with Jim. And we've always had a wonderful relationship. After Jim, Bill Flynn, Joe Palmieri, certainly Joe R. Palmieri, Paul Vishnu. You know, he was, he had an influence on everybody. I think if you talk to all our past chairmen, they would say that they would name Paul Vishnu as, as someone who's influenced their leadership in the association. And I can't forget some others who have been a great influence, not only on my leadership, but the association itself. Bill Hannon, Bay Cities, Jim DeLine at DeLine Box Company, Jim Davis, past president. And Dick Kelly. More recently, Gene Marino. 
Ah. Oh boy, you that. You have cut no that. idea what you have no oh, idea what you that. just did. Cut that. Cut it. Yeah, take that out. <laughs> and now, I think another aspect of our volunteer leadership that a lot of people might not realize is that our leadership has actually been generational. And what I mean by that is that we've had presidents, past presidents of this association whose sons or daughters have themselves risen to leadership in the association. I think particularly of George Arvanigan, his son Greg Arvanigan was then our chairman, uh, Bill Flynn of Scope Packaging, and his daughter Cindy Baker, Don Morphy, who served in 1985, and now his son Brad Morphy was a chairman. And I also, uh, Joe, Joseph R. Palmieri, his son Joe M. Palmieri. And in this year, we have uh, Matt Davis, whose father Jim Davis served as a past president as well. So it's not only a long and illustrious string of leaders that we've had, but also their sons and daughters have also stepped up to serve. Who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of AICC if you could? Frankly, you get three slots because you're, yeah, one, you're, of one, of <laughs> you're one of them. So you have three slots to fill. Let's take mine out because that makes it a little bit easier for me. Dick Troll definitely yeah. will be up there. He's our George Washington. Yeah. You'd have to put Hardy Sanders up there because he was the founder of ICTF, mm-hmm. one of the catalysts. He wrote the first check, Jack Rollman, for his role in, in graphics yeah. in the industry. Yeah. See, I don't think I mentioned Triangle Container when I was talking about the graphics companies earlier, but don't you remember when he used his Bopst press to do a rendition of the Mona Lisa? direct on corrugated and that was mailed out Bob's used that as a great promotion piece for here's what we can print now I think I put Jim Hagelin up there because Jim was our overseas director for so many years he was our diplomat yes for the world how many international corrugated case association conferences did he speak at and represent the independent and he fought within that organization he fought for the independence voice I think I'd be remiss not to mention your activity outside of AICC. You're a huge volunteer, you spend a lot of time in the church. I believe you're still a part of the Haircuts for Homeless program in DC. What does that mean to you over the years? How active, when did that start? Has it always been a part of your life? And touch upon what that means to you personally. Yes, it has been. It's been a big part of my life. I mentioned Hardy Sanders earlier, and one of the one of the first slogans we used at, at ICPF was putting something back. So this concept of you have to put something back, I don't, I don't care where it is, whether it's in your professional life or your personal life, what you can do for others. So it's the whole idea of being able to serve other people and, and having the time and the health to do that. I think I've been blessed with all those. And so it's always been very important to me. I probably started that in the late 80s, being in Alexandria, the homeless shelter they started, and I don't want to bore you with all the, those kinds of details, but yeah, something I still do today. So now I'm working where I live, or I'm in a small town in Virginia, I'm helping at the Catholic Charities Food Pantry two mornings a week. So you can imagine in a food pantry where we get a lot of donations in boxes, something has to be done with those boxes, and they have a big bin in the back. They don't have a baler. They can't fit a baler there. <laughs> they have this big bin, so I become the recycling guy. 
and I've had to teach people how to correctly KD a box. So we talk about breaking down boxes. <laughs> we have to do that at the food pantry. I'm reminded of this podcast every week. <laughs> what about uh, regrets? Do you look back on your career, maybe anything you would change? I can't think of a single thing. Not with AICC, certainly. I used the term blessed before, and I really feel that. It's been, it's been a blessing in my life. That, that expression, the Lord puts you in the vineyard he needs you in. And, and so I think AICC needed my talents, perhaps, but maybe more importantly, I needed AICC's influence in my life. I think the other thing I really wanted to touch upon, you, you talked a little bit about your transition with Dick and how that went not too long ago. Your role changed at AICC, and mm-hmm. Mike stepped into your shoes. Explain how that transition went, how you went into that whole process. Were there things that you wanted to see differently this time around than when you transitioned in with Dick? Yeah, I thought it was very important that the board knew my time plan, what I wanted to do, and how we can work together to make that happen. And so I think even when I turned 55, I said to Lee Shilatel at the time, because I think he was chairman, that's another guy who's been a great influence on God rest his soul. I said to him, okay, Lee, 10 years goes fast. I'm 55. You gotta start, we're going to start thinking about transition and when that might take place. And Okay, fine, 10 years. So five years goes by and another, you know, it's getting closer. And I think around that time, Mike D'Angelo became available, I'll say, after his tenure at, at Goss, and Mike and uh, Mike reminded me of a dinner we had a long time ago, and, and we had talked about how we want to do something, we want to give something back more. Mike expressed that in this dinner we had, and we thought maybe he could take over AICC one day. But that's what happened, and I'll go back. You know, Dick Troll was the right guy for AICC back in 1980. Mike was the right guy for AICC in 2016. 15, and 19 when he took over. And the board knew that. We had, there was never any subterfuge or any, everything was up up above board. And and so it's been a great transition. And I very much appreciated how, how the board and Mike and the board have allowed me to continue in my role now as an ambassador and allow me to participate in the meetings. It's, it's always great to be here. And visit members, visit member companies, and see what's going on. What do you think, Crystal Ball, from your vantage point, we're headed as, a, as an industry and an association in the next 10 years? I think certainly as an industry, we're going to see more consolidation. We'll always have companies, independent companies, family companies who don't have succession plans, exit plans. That's always been the case. So I think we'll see more consolidation just on that basis. But I I also think we're going to see a lot more automation, production capacity. Look at the speeds that these machines are running now. And like I said earlier, we had, we used to have 1500 rooftops. Now we have fewer than a thousand and they're producing more board than ever. And so I think that trend's only going to continue. And I think what medium, what other packaging medium can replace what corrugated board and paperboard? does in our distribution system. I haven't found it yet. I don't think any of you have either. So I think it has a very positive, very positive future. For AICC, I think AICC will benefit from that. I think AICC can be a catalyst in 
educating members about these trends and how they can best serve customers and meet the demands of customers, as we always have. At the, at, in those errors based on the knowledge we had at the time, like during, the, during those 90s when, the, when graphics was becoming, sustainability, you know, all of the environmental things are, I think are always going to be with us. I think Corrugated has a very positive image in these environmental debates that we're having. What would you tell your 1976 mud hen self today if you could go back and say, here's something I really want you to think about as you start your career? Avoid rash decisions. It's interesting. Don't rely on a first impression. We can all say that, right? I'm always reminded, and I'm reminding myself and I'm reminded by others, how wrong I've often been about my judgment of a person or a situation or at the get-go versus what happens six months later. It's the beauty of friends and family. They always remind, are, you. remind you how wrong you are. <laughs> I watched the ICC Hall of Fame video again, and there was this portion of that which people gave their one word how to describe Steve. I talked to a few other people and asked them that question again. Here are some of the words that were thrown out. Authentic, strong, honest, integrity, trustworthy, leader, ethical, intelligent, and visionary. So it's clearly some high praise from a lot of your peers over the years. And if you look back upon that day you walked into the office and saw the vacuum in front of the printer, would you ever imagine those words being used to describe you? No. No. But I think it's by virtue of the association's influence on me that some of those have been said. I've been surrounded by such good people, such good leaders within AICC that you can't be around someplace for 40 years and not absorb some of its attributes. And so I think that's been a big part of it. You, not only have you successfully achieved, but also in, in identifying Mike, who I think, in my opinion, has the same characteristics, which I commend you on this transition is, you balance this leadership skill set with a servant attitude skill set, and there's not a lot of people who know how to do that. And we're thankful for what you've done. It's been my pleasure. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.